Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. If I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Is a quote from Henry Ford, the American industrialist, business magnate and founder of the Ford Motor Company, a person who profoundly impacted the landscape of the 20th century. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest, like Henry Ford, is a business leader embarking on an expedition that could significantly help alter the way that many of us lived our lives and who is not afraid to go against the current thinking, so much so that he recently penned an open letter to the world's automotive industry leaders stating that the rule book is being rewritten and those who succeed will be ones who adapt fastest. Our guest today is Sam Riggle, Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Cleantech Holdings Limited, an Australian and Canadian listed technology company focused on the development of resources to service new energy and materials markets. He was previously Executive Vice President of Business Development and Strategic Planning at Ivanhoe Mines Limited where he led the successful negotiation with the Mongolian parliament of a 50-year investment agreement for the oil Tolgoi copper and gold mine. Sam's early career was with Rio Tinto Group, where he also held a variety of global roles. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this very thought-provoking episode, Sam challenges us to consider our times and the technological advances that await us, highlighting that the world is at a very interesting tipping point. And as CEO of a technology company that could help revolutionize the renewable energy, automotive and aerospace sectors, as well as play a key role in providing safe drinking water so some of those 800 million people without access and the 2 billion without basic sanitation. We are taken on a journey that covers the chemistry of mining, the darkness of the Congo, the chessboard and manoeuvring of the geopolitical power brokers, the hope of the entrepreneur and the realisation that Elvis lives on in rural Australia. So sit back and enjoy. Innovation is just hard work. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. How does a graduate in economics and law build a career in mining and become the CEO of Cleantech, an ASX-listed metals recovery and water treatment company? Uh, It was a long, tortuous and plotting journey. After graduating from law, I started my career in the mining industry, and I was fortunate to have a job with Rio Tinto, who I stayed with for almost 15 years. 
part of that time in my early days was spent in the exploration group of Rio at the time. They just at that stage committed to the uh, merger of CRA and RTZ in London. Yep. And everything had been restructured, so it was like joining a new company in many ways. Uh, very uh, two very different cultures coming together. But I uh, started in exploration, working in joint venture work. To me, that was fascinating. It was like almost uh, research and development work. Uh, very low probabilities of success with very high payoffs if you were successful. Yep. It was a few years after Marbo, so we were we were dealing with native title at the time, land access in Australia. Uh, I was doing work for them in Eastern Europe and Africa and India and Central Asia for exploration projects. So it was a great start to, you know, a, a career in mining, getting to see all those sides of the business. Eventually moved to London to work in the London office uh, as the mining executive for their industrial minerals business. Mm-hmm. And that was a great experience. It taught me uh, the difference between commoditization and value in use in the mining industry. Yeah. In most cases, miners are, are, are price takers. We don't have a lot we can do in terms of influencing the value of product yep. that we produce. Yeah. In industrial minerals, we were selling to all sorts of technology industries and high-value industries. So what's industrial minerals, Sam? What does that mean? We were producing minerals and metals that could add a lot of value to our customers, yep. but we often were the catalyst for driving technology development for how we could apply those products differently. Mm-hmm. So rather than just dumping our products into the market for a given price, we had a lot of our people sitting in our customers' offices working on R&D projects and uh, looking at how we add value to what we did. When I joined that, that business, you know, that was generating about a third of Rio Tinto's profit. Wow. Today it's less than 1%. And really what drove that yeah. was what we saw at the early 2000s, which was the emergence of China's industrialization. Yeah. Uh, and that, that just saw a huge pull on bulk commodities, so iron ore, which is really where Rio drives most of its profit today uh, in metallurgical and thermal coal. Um, so we, we saw almost a, um, a disconnect in the mining industry in the early 2000s, which was really driven by China. Towards the end of my time at Rio, we, we did a lot of work in new project generation. So we looked at areas like um, energy storage, lithium products, uh, coal to liquids, and areas in research and development for exploration like geophysics. My last job at Rio is is in Mongolia, spending six years working with the Mongolian parliament to negotiate a development agreement for the uh, the Oyotolgoi mine there, one of the world's biggest copper gold mines. And after leaving Rio, uh, sort of partway through that, that process, I joined a company called Ivanhoe Mines, who was Rio's joint venture partner in Mongolia. Uh, and Rio Tinto eventually took out uh, Ivanhoe. And that, that was really how I came to Cleantech because the chairman of Ivanhoe at that point decided that he liked the technology that Cleantech uh, had developed. And uh, his name is Robert Friedland, a very successful mining uh, investor. And he and I invested in Cleantech, it was about six, seven years ago. And uh, what really attracted us was what they had developed in separation and extraction technologies, which could be applied across industries, whether it was in mining uh, whether it was in water treatment or other applications. So uh, that's how I came to be CEO of Cleantech. So if I read your, your vision statement, Cleantech's vision is to empower the clean revolution. We apply our technologies to find better ways to solve planet Earth's most pressing environmental problems. Gee, that's a big task. So how are you going to do all that and what does that actually mean to me? Well, there are no silver bullets in this space. Uh, very rarely do you see technologies that are so... Um, 
disruptive that they change a market overnight. We're, we're one of thousands of, of companies developing small incremental improvements in technology. Mm-hmm. So um, for us, it's, you know, our three, our three um, values that we, uh, that we impress on our staff in our, in our organisation are about being invested, being connected and being prepared to be different. And that last one is really the key to what drives innovation in our place. We, we're prepared to look at problems quite differently. Yep. It's really a, a function of the founder, uh, Peter Voigt's vision for how he thought you could approach a lot of these problems. So it was, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great um, vision statement to have. Uh, and we think we're making quite good headroads both in the mining industry and the water industry and some of the things we're bringing to the market. I, I'm going to refer you to a, a letter that you made public. Mm-hmm. I write this letter from the forgotten and neglected backwater of your highly efficient just-in-time supply chains, the extractive materials end. This is the dusty, dirty and noisy end where an activity called mining takes place. It's probably not an activity that you've thought deeply about over the years, nor that one has caused you to lose much sleep. That is about to change. This was an open letter, wasn't it, Sam, to the world's automotive industry? It was, yeah. It was my attempt at a wake-up call for people to understand what is about to hit the industry. And, um, um, you know, if I could uh, indulge you for a minute. Please. I I think that the world is at a a very interesting tipping point at the moment. We have an enormous opportunity in renewable energy and, and the technology that's taking us in that direction. But very few people have understood the implications, particularly for the mining industry. If you, if you think about where most of our energy comes from today, a lot of it's derived from fossil fuels. The oil industry is the world's largest commodity market that exists, a $2.5 trillion market. Okay. But in the space of 40 to 50 years, we're talking about supplanting all of that fossil fuel with other materials to generate and store electricity. And metals are a critical part of that. The, the, the world metal industry uh, is about to undergo a profound shift in terms of what is required uh, for supplying this renewable energy revolution that's about to take place. And that's really what you know, our view of technology and the mining industry and how those things intersect, uh, to me, is very important. We need to understand these issues and we need to develop solutions relatively quickly. So, so how does that play into the actual car itself? Is it the battery? Is it the storage of battery? What, Sam, can you maybe talk us through what, what you're pitching at? It is, it is the energy storage component of, a, of an electric vehicle, so, okay. which is a battery. Um, the best-in-class technology that we have today is a lithium-ion battery for energy density and storage. Yep. Uh, and we've seen incredible improvements in performance and cost reduction in uh, electric vehicle batteries over the last decade. I think um, the the cost has been reduced by about just over 90% so far in the last decade, and that trend continues. So you're, we are reaching a point now where the cost to, to put a battery into uh, a, a car uh, will soon surpass the cost of using an internal combustion engine with its the fuel source that it uses. And obviously you have the benefits of reduced emissions from that, yes. reduced particulate emissions in particular, which are... Uh, are the things that people forget about. We talk a lot about CO2, but often the real damage done by transportation comes in the immediate health impacts through uh, nitrous oxide and things that the, the, the cars emit themselves. 
But um, yes, the, the battery is the key and the, and the battery is manufactured predominantly using metal. So okay. you have a, a number of key metals that sit in those batteries. The, the major ones are lithium, uh, nickel and cobalt. Yes. There's a lot of copper in them okay. uh, in terms of both the electrics and cooling systems. Yep. And on the minerals side for the anode, you have graphite. So uh, if you want to electrify the world's transportation industry, you need an energy storage solution, transport, and those are the metals that are required to make it a reality. And where do these metals predominantly come from, Sam? It depends. So Australia is the world's largest producer of lithium. Okay. And most of that is hard rock lithium. Spodumene concentrate is usually shipped to China for refining. Okay. Well, we are building some refineries in this country. And Chile is also a large producer of lithium, mostly salar uh, salt deposits. Lithium is a relatively abundant mineral, not too capital intensive to develop uh, in relative terms. Uh, so, you know, we, we can see a clear path probably to supplying enough lithium to the industry. The bigger challenges are nickel and cobalt. Um, about two-thirds of the world's cobalt is mined in the Congo, and um, about 20% uh, comes from artisanal mining, often involving child labour, uh, right. which creates a significant problem for the industry yes. and for the customers. Uh, and, and cobalt is geologically scarce. The uh, cobalt is almost always mined as a byproduct of something else. So to see cobalt supply expand, we're going to have to see a number of copper mines and nickel mines developed over the next decade. You're talking almost a shift in the paradigm here, are you, Sam? Uh, yeah, well, in terms of our project in Australia, it's seen as a, uh, a much less risky option for cobalt supply than having to go to Africa and source it there. Nickel, though, to me, is probably the biggest Achilles heel in this supply chain. Okay. Uh, because good quality nickel resources are difficult to find uh, and it's capital intensive to develop assets like this. So we're going to see, in my opinion, within the next three to four years, some very tight bottlenecks emerging in raw materials supply to these battery uh, supply chains. And that's going to cause a great, um, uh, as my chairman says, a great degree of pucker factor downstream because there, there are billions of dollars uh, being invested at the moment in battery plants, uh, retooling automotive lines, but no one is thinking about the raw materials. So when you put this open letter to the market, I think you sent it to the, the key decision makers in this in this industry, yep. what feedback did you get back? Uh, I got a lot of feedback from everyone except the auto industry, uh, strangely enough. Um, what, and why is that? You know, I, I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for the auto industry. It's probably one industry that's undergoing more profound change than any other on earth because of technology mm-hmm. and the way technology has shifted. They're having, if you think about it, to, com- to develop completely new products. So their priorities at the moment are dealing with what's in front of them, not thinking five or six steps up the supply chain to worry about what's happening in the mining industry. But from our perspective, all we can do is, is talk to the supply chain and educate them about some of the issues that the mining industry faces. There is not nearly enough capital being invested in new capacity anywhere across the supply chain at the moment. And, and that will come to hurt this supply chain in the next three to four years. So projects like Sunrise, our project in, in New South Wales, yes. uh, is uh, you know, absolutely critical for, for uh, building a template for how you develop mines to supply this, this industry. So the likes of Mr. Musk, who's pushing that brilliant car, Tesla, he, yep. didn't, he didn't take the time to come back to you and, and understand what you could offer? 
Uh, look, we speak to a lot of car companies. As I say, it's, well, that's to us, it's, to it's, it's about educating people. <laughs> Sam, well, the, the big thing is, how far away is it going to be to all of us are driving electrical cars? Well, if you look around the world, you've, you're already seeing countries and major cities uh, announce um, moratoriums or end dates on the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles. Okay. And in some some cities and countries, that's as soon as 2025. This will start kicking in in five years. You will not, within a decade, in many countries, be able to buy an, uh, an internal combustion engine vehicle. To the naive, can I ask you which countries? Uh, yeah, so uh, Germany, um, China, um, state of California, which is one of the world's biggest uh, automotive markets. Okay. Uh, Italy, France, um, you know, the, most of the Western world. Uh, and an increasing number of uh, the developing world are now already making this. And that it, to some extent, they don't need to. And the reason is that the economics will eventually speak for itself. Um, if, if we can develop batteries and electric vehicles cheap enough to compete with an internal combustion engine mm -hmm. uh, that provide the functionality that's needed, for example, recharging times yes. and the range that people need yep. uh, in their vehicles, then the internal combustion engine will go the way of the dinosaur eventually. Uh, I, I actually expect to see that trend accelerate very fast once you've got a, a certain scale of EVs being sold into the market. We're already at around about 2% today. Um, by the end of this decade, we'll probably be closer to 15 to 20%. Uh, and what about the future impact of hydrogen cars? Does that make any difference to what your technology is Going to impact? Yeah, hyd hydrogen fuel cells are another form of energy storage that can be used, and it's good technology. That the challenge with hydrogen is how you get it around the economy. How do you extract hydrogen cost effectively? Okay. And how do you transport it as a source of fuel uh, around the economy? And that's principally an infrastructure challenge. It has a lot of technical benefits going for it. Hydrogen it just doesn't it doesn't produce uh, anything except water at the end of the process. But I think if you look on a, an energy density basis and uh, the cost of actually being able to provide and get the energy required into the vehicle, the battery systems are far, far, far superior to, to hydrogen today. So can you talk me through Cleantech? So you're, this, is, this is an organisation, as you say, which has got new technology. Is the world buying your product? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. You know, we, um, when I first arrived at the, the company, we had... Uh, a struggling water business that had probably, uh, on the best interpretation, failed in its joint venture with a Japanese partner uh, here in Australia. We had an air pollution treatment business that was unprofitable. We had to make a lot of hard decisions to restructure. Uh, and it's the common challenge of most technology companies, great technology, but how do you commercialise it effectively? And we struggle with that every day. Are we making inroads? Yeah, we are. Um, I'm you know, pleased to say our water business has delivered its first three water treatment plants in different parts of the world in the last 12 months. Um, we've, we've started work on a, on a very large project here in Australia. And the reason is that the offering is very different. You know, for, uh, for hundreds of years, we've treated water either by dosing it with chemicals yeah. or pushing it through a membrane, which requires enormous amounts of energy. We've adopted here a, a very different approach. We're using ion exchange systems using the electrochemistry of the system to selectively pull pollution out of water. So, uh, you know, the market hasn't seen approaches to this in water treatment before. 
but you know we've um, uh, we're I think every new product needs to find niche markets to begin with, and as it grows, it will it'll find mainstream applications and will eventually be um, very effective. Can that be done on scale, Sam? Oh yeah, uh, it can be done at very large scale, and as I say, that because you are not using a lot of energy trying to push polluted water through filters or membranes. There are enormous energy-saving benefits in doing it this way. As I say, you effectively use the contained electrochemistry of, of the system, the water itself, right. to do all the hard work of selecting and extracting the pollution. And can you maybe sort of give me a bit of an overview of around the world? How many people are actually drinking clean water? How, you know, what's the opportunity in the sense of uh, your market share? Yeah, look, it's, it's an enormous market, um, but it's highly fragmented. So... Um, I think there's roughly about a, the numbers you see from the UN. There's about 800 million people around the world who don't have access to safe drinking water. Um, there's, there's probably just over 2 billion who don't have access to sanitation, just basic toilet facilities. Um, and the, the third leading cause of childhood mortality is diarrhoea, the quality of water people have and, and um, infection rates. Um, so... It's really important. You go to a place like China and it dawns on you very quickly that uh, they have a lower per capita access to quality water than the Middle East does. And um, the scale of their their uh, water treatment um, challenges is enormous. So China is a huge, huge market. But as I say, the markets are fragmented. Many different types of technology are used. Oh, okay. And you need to be able as a supplier of a service here to provide a, a, a bespoke service. Every water ish, uh, problem is unique uh, and you need to be able to bring a toolkit of different solutions and, and to be able to bolt them together to provide something to the client that works. Can you maybe give us a bit of an example of some of the success stories thus far? Yeah, so um, we've built a small but novel uh, uh, plant in Amman, uh, which is uh, bolted onto an existing metallurgical uh, plant, a refinery. Mm-hmm. And it pulls out a lot of the, the waste products out of the, the mine site, which just they had, the, the client had a lot of trouble uh, disposing of. It couldn't, it couldn't get uh, the regulation to be able to dispose of its wastewater. So that's, that's a typical industrial application. Uh, desalination, uh, we look at, uh, at mine sites. Also acidification. So you have, uh, you may be aware that a lot of ores um, contain sulfur, so you have an, an acid problem over time. Yeah. You get a buildup of natural, uh, naturally occurring sulfuric acid, and we can use our technologies to deacidify. We've uh, built a, a very large plant down at the Fosterville Gold Mine here in Victoria uh, recently, and uh, you know, there are uh, in in the Congo. We've built a, a very interesting plant that pulls uranium waste uh, out of um, uh, mining waste streams so that the the water can be returned either to process or to the surrounding uh, waterways safely. So uh, lots of different applications um, and the variety of the the applications really is a testament to the diversity and and adaptability of the technology that's been developed. And are you getting much opportunity, enough opportunity here to um, display your wares in Australia? Yeah, as I say, we've we've, um, started work on um, a municipal wastewater treatment plant in Townsville. Okay. Uh, and uh, that, that's a big contract. Um, uh, we, we're still negotiating in Townsville to secure that contract, but hopefully uh, in the next uh, weeks or months we'll have that and we can start uh, building that as well. So it's all Australian-owned? 
Uh, well, no, we're, as a publicly listed company, we have a lot of shareholders based all over the world, but um, predominantly the majority of our shareholding is Australian, yes. Okay. You talk a lot about technology and that means innovation. So this is big picture stuff you're talking about, Sam. What is innovation then from, from someone like yourself? <laughs> Look, uh, innovation is just hard work day after day after day. It's It's great to have ideas and, and visions for how to improve things but then the real work starts and and we're not talking months we're, we're often talking years of work that that takes it takes to bring an idea to fruition so um and, and running companies that are in the innovation space is challenging because there's always a natural tension between innovation and execution i, I work in a company where i get up uh, get dressed every morning and go to work feeling very uncomfortable. And I, I've grown used to that because uh, there's a, a very different approach between two parts of my organisation, one that is very focused on um, pushing the envelope, um, uh, being very happy to scrap plans and move to the next thing, being quite nimble. And I have another part that's trying to deliver a mega project in Australia who is engineering focused, thinks linearly, um, doesn't have a lot of adaptability and doesn't want to have a lot of adaptability because they have to execute to a very tight uh, schedule and time frame. So, you know, I deal with that every day and trying to manage an organisation that it's a, it's a little bit bipolar. But um, the discomfort, I think, is a good sign that you've probably, you're getting that tension and the sparking that you need for people to understand um, or, or to feel as though they, they have the licence to try and come up with new ideas and push the envelope on things. Um, but yeah, it's it's a challenge every day. And how do you paint the pictures in people's minds? Oh, you're talking about cars that we're dreaming of. You're talking about energy cells we can't even think of. You're talking about clean water to people who've never seen it before. How do you get governments or how do you get other investment bodies across the line to support an organisation like yourself? Yeah, look, with a vision like ours, it's not hard to get support. People, everyone wants in some way to make a difference and make an important difference. And um, with the emphasis and focus on environment and environmental outcomes, um, you know, we have a strong brand. People want to see us succeed. Our staff love working in our company because, um, you know, most of them are aligned with the values we have. We want to make a difference. Um, and uh, it, it's exciting working on something that is new. We are in, in, in both in water and in metals doing things that haven't been done before. That's a challenge. But uh, our people are highly invested in making that work. Um, in terms of government support, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, that companies at the end of the day need to be profitable. So, yeah, right, okay. um, you know, I'm, I'm not a big one for saying government needs to step in and support business to make, uh, to make things work. But there, there is an element... Uh, particularly when you're going through the change we are going through at the moment in the world, the shift to renewable energy, what role does Australia play in that, where you have to start thinking about the national interest. Yes. And the national interest for us is a very strong argument when you think about we are the world's largest lithium producer, uh, we're the world's third largest nickel producer, we're the world's third largest cobalt producer, um, and we have this wonderful resource endowment that positions us beautifully to be a major player in these renewable markets, not just in Australia but globally, um, yet um, we, we struggle to get a very consistent policy 
um, and thinking around how we can leverage our position strongly in this area. So that you know, that's my challenge. Half the time is spent managing the business. The other half is spent trying to convince people that there is a much bigger national interest uh, uh, initiative here that needs to be thought through. But Sam, why do I keep hearing the same old, I guess, elements or mining focus, iron ore and coal? Why, why, do, why not? Why I'm not hearing what you just talked about? Well, I think you will over time. You know, iron ore, metallurgical coal, thermal coal are, are very important too. They are the bellwethers of industrial development. China would never have developed at the rate it has without Australia's resources. And the same goes for, for large parts of Southeast Asia. We have uh, we have used the resources in this country to uh, uplift the standards of living of you know, hundreds of millions of people across that region. And they are strategic metals. They are strategic assets and they will continue to be. But as we see this shift to renewables, yep. we will start to see the emergence of a, a range of other materials that will become very, very important. I, I, I worry that in today's society, we forget where things come from. Everything we consume, whether it's data, whether it's food, um, whether it's clothing, whether it's you know consumer goods, whatever we consume is either mined or farmed, has to have come from one of those two sources. We apply you know our human knowledge and skill to turning it into a product, but the the basic the basic raw materials. This is there's nothing basic about them, but they, we call them basic raw materials are either mined or farmed at, at the beginning, and that's where all value is created in society. It comes from the earth. So getting people to understand that and understand why what we do in mining is so fundamentally important to these industries and the way technology develops is, is really one of the challenges I'm facing and communicating that is, is, um, is really important. So how do you communicate besides just putting the odd letter out here and there to the whole world? How, how are you communicating the message? And from the sides of politicians you talked about a few minutes back and environmental policy, are they listening well enough? Yeah, look, I think we work well with government. We we certainly uh, provide our views to government. As you noted in that letter, we have a very clear view on some of the problems that the industry will be facing. Uh, and, and you're starting to see it uh, globally operate now. So one of the recent initiatives has been between the Australian government and US government on the supply of critical and strategic minerals. Yes. So that no doubt is a, uh, a product of a concern that supply chains at the moment uh, are not set up in a way that supports you know, Australian or US interests and that uh, there's too much dependence on processing of raw materials in other parts of the world. We need to develop independence in some of these areas. That's a big key point. So can you talk us through what do you mean by the failure of our supply chain? Yeah, so while we're a wonderful miner of raw materials, yep. uh, the fact is that a lot of the processing happens offshore. This issue of value-adding to our natural resources goes back decades. Right. It's why Rio and BHP were forced to build uh, ultimately failed uh, steel uh, processing operations in Australia. That was part of the condition of developing the iron ore resources. But it, look, in the end, with China's development over the last you know, two decades, let's say, mm-hmm. it has ultimately been the vacuum cleaner that has soaked up all the resources, not just Australia, all around the world. And it's been what's required to fuel China's industrial development. But as supply chains 
through globalization that's taken place have become more and more fragmented. Each part relies in increasingly more on the other to supply what it needs. And at the moment, even though we are a supplier of raw materials, an important supplier, we are heavily dependent on other countries to provide us with the materials we need for uh, either intermediate industrial processing or the finished goods that we need. So um, you know, this is nowhere seen more clearly than in the automotive industry, which if you think of an industry that has perfected the art of the supply chain, just-in-time supply, mm -hmm. uh, sourcing from all over the world, driving costs down, it's been the automakers. They've been masters at it. But they are seeing now that the supply chain that has served them so well for the last 50 years isn't going to be the supply chain that's going to serve them for the next 50 years. All of a sudden, these exotic metals called cobalt and lithium and nickel are the, are the things they need to put their foot on. And at the moment, with the concentration of uh, processing capacity in certain parts of the world, they can only go through through one country to get it. So are, are we missing an enormous opportunity to use our brains more than just our skills at digging holes? Yeah, and look, I, I don't want to downplay some really good things that we've done in the mining industry over the decades. We, we have in certain areas um, uh, developed a lot of good technology, but it hasn't been downstream. You know, we've um, we've driven the cost of mining lower and lower. We've been very efficient and very effective at doing that. And we've driven that by technology, but it's technology that's been focused on scale. Yep. So I would argue that over the years, the reason we have become the dominant uh, country in the world at mining and driving costs down is principally because we do things at much larger scale. And that's fine, but at some point you have to realise that with scale, comes externalities and costs. A good example is copper. You know, if you look back 100 years, uh, we, we were mining very high-grade copper resources. If you look at the copper grades nowadays that we mine, um, for the same volume, we probably get a 20th, a 10th to a 20th of the same amount of um, uh, copper so out of, out of the ground, which means we have to just mine more ore. Um, it, there's huge amounts of material being moved today just to produce pretty much the same amount of material we produced a decade ago. So that's that's the challenge. At some point, technology has to move from uh, being an enabler of scale yep. to being an enabler of um, quality. And in quality, I mean we, we should be able to pull out the material in a smarter way, yep. at a lower cost way, without necessarily having to make everything bigger and bigger. Now, while we're just talking about sort of the um, the global economics of, of things, Sam, should I be worried if I'm thinking about China and their partnerships around the world, maybe the likes in South America, where they're going to get very good access to great metals, great minerals? Could we find ourselves in a bit of trouble in a few years' time? Are we, are we, are we putting ourselves in jeopardy here of missing opportunities? Yeah, we are. We are. And when I mean, you mentioned China, I think China is exceptionally good at playing the long game and understanding the implications of investments early. So um, when, when China thinks about how to secure its national interests, it doesn't think about being a great car maker. It thinks about, well, what do those cars need to include? They need to include batteries. So we also need to build battery capability. Uh, what do you need for batteries? Well, you need raw materials. So we need to also secure the raw materials. It, it's interesting when I go to China to discuss our project 
you know, I, I enter a meeting room and sitting across the other side of the table from me is not just one company, uh, it's many companies. And uh, it, it might be a car maker, it might be their battery supplier, and it might be a cathode manufacturer. Yeah, okay. They are extremely strategic when it comes to thinking about how they integrate their supply chain. And, and for that reason, when you work in the West, you don't necessarily see that integration. Every part of the supply chain works independently. And that's that's a loss. So I think in the West we need to be a bit more Chinese in our mindset to understand that you can only build a successful industry if you build a foundation on the raw materials that are needed. If I was a car owner, if I was a chief exec or a chairman of one of the global car companies, should I be um, partnering with you? I would say yes. I've been saying yes to all of them. Um, I think you need to. I think whether it's us or someone else, you need a strategy to secure the raw materials. We call Tesla's factory in Nevada the Gigafactory, you know, but we forget that there was an earlier Gigafactory which was built in the early 1900s by the Ford Motor Company. It was called uh, the Rouge. It was the largest integrated raw materials industrial and manufacturing plant in the world at the time. Yeah. Uh, it had a port, so raw materials were brought into the port. Uh, they had smelters to produce steel at the site. All that steel was rolled. It was banged out on the site. They manufactured cars from it. Henry Ford understood that if you're going through uh, or trying to develop a new technology, which has a huge mass market for sale, you need to control the factors of production. Yeah. You need to do it effectively. Ford wasn't just a motor company. They were the um, uh, they were one of the world's largest iron ore miners at the time. They had rubber plantations all around the world. And uh, for a fast-growing industry, you need to be able to control those factors of production as Ford did at the, in those times. So there's, a, there's certainly a template for what has happened in the past. I, I would just argue that if you are going to make big bets, you know, multi-multi-billion dollar bets on developing electric vehicles, you can't afford to execute that strategy without knowing where your raw materials are going to come from. All right, and you're telling me these big bets are going to have to be placed. You're in a position to provide me with the minerals and the product to help me get my cars from A to B. Who's your competitors? Oh, it's, it's a very competitive industry, mining. Um, there are uh, development projects all over Australia. There are uh, many in uh, other parts of the world that are all looking to develop nickel and cobalt and lithium and other other metals. Yeah. Are, they, are these the rare the rare earths that we keep hearing about? Yeah, the, uh, rare earths are slightly different. We okay. in in electric vehicles we uh, use rare earths in the motors, and they can be quite intensive for rare earth development. Again, that's another that's another business where uh, China has a very strong uh, position in the market. You know, almost all of the world's processing is done in China for rare earths. So there are projects all around the world. The thing, the thing for us is that while there are lots of projects, you need to see them developed responsibly. And if we are going to commit to a world full of these electric cars, which are, are going to solve our emissions problem, it's no good if they're built using uh, child labour or if the mines that produce the raw materials dump their waste directly into the ocean uh, or they um, they create a bigger environmental problem than the one they're intended to solve at the end of the day. So you know, what we're doing at our project Sunrise in New South Wales is trying to build a template which shows how we can build this quite differently 
to mines that have been built in the past so that it can be integrated very easily into an automotive supply chain. And you, talk, and you talked about some of those negative parts of the mining industry. How abundant is child labour? Look, in developing part of the world, it, it can be a large part. I think they estimate there are hundreds of thousands of artisanal miners in the Congo, uh, and many of them are children. And, you know, we, we apply, it's easy to apply value judgments from the West about how terrible this is, but these are people who, uh, you know, struggle to put food on the table and artisanal mining is their only source of viable income. So, you know, to me, it, it's far better than, uh, than saying that we should ban cobalt from the Congo or remove cobalt completely from the chemistries. It's a far better outcome to say instead we will invest in trying to make this a viable industry for these people, um, try and spread some of the wealth of their mineral resources to society so that they can benefit from it. That's the challenge. And we don't have that problem, obviously, in Australia, but the world will not have enough cobalt unless they're prepared to uh, accept it from the Congo. Okay. You talked about Project uh, Sunrise. Can you just give me a bit, maybe a bit of an understanding of or explain to the audience, how is it tracking? What, what, is, what does it take to accelerate to where you want to get to? Maybe you can sort of share us a bit more sort of flavor of, of the actual project itself. Yeah. So the, the project is a large uh, nickel cobalt scandium resource um, in New South Wales, close to the township of Parks. Okay. Well, it's in Lachlanshire up there. Where Elvis has been known to appear sometimes. <laughs> yep, that's the, the highlight of the region. Uh, there's also an ABBA festival up there, which is very that's popular. Right, that's right, yeah. Um, it's a terrific community up there. I mean, they uh, predominantly farming, but um, you know, they, they've been going through an awful time in the last few years with the drought. Yeah. It's just been amazing to see the way that the community has come together and, and supported each other. But you know, things like, like the, um, the Elvis festival provides a bit of light what is um, can be a, quite a difficult time for the community. Um, so look, it's, it's it's a very large project. It's probably the largest greenfield mining development project in Australia. Uh, the aim at this project is to produce exclusively battery materials. So okay. we'll extract the nickel and cobalt and convert them into chemicals directly used in the production of battery cathode. Yep. And the scandium, which is a metal that not many people have probably heard of, uh, is a very rare metal. Okay. Uh, and it's uh, the most effective alloy that exists for aluminium. So it makes aluminium stronger, corrosion resistant, weldable, uh, and uh, has, for that reason, very high value in aerospace, rocket applications, in automotive. In terms of where the project is, uh, we're completing our engineering phase at the moment. By the end of quarter three, the quarter we're currently in, we'll have completed the project execution plan at which case it's development ready and ready to start building. So my focus and the focus of my team is on uh, getting that engineering work completed, finishing the remaining uh, small bits of permitting to be done and uh, raising the finance to have it built. What has the uh, global pandemic highlighted to you? Yeah, quite a few things. Um, back back to the talk about supply chains, mm-hmm. it's, it's really shown um, the vulnerabilities of many supply chains. and. Part of that is based on uh, just the interdependence of where material moves around the world. Right. But part of it is also based on uh, the increasing tensions you see, uh, particularly between countries, as to access to raw materials. And so for me, I think from, from a supply chain side, COVID has shown that 
we need to think very differently about what uh, supply side uh, independence looks like um, in, in various industries. I think it's you know obviously going to have a huge impact on certain sectors, some much more than others. You know, airlines, uh, tourism, uh, even for for a period of time, automotive. I'd say uh, hospitality, restaurants, cafes. It, it's going to be a long, difficult uh, slog back to what we call normality. But I, th- I don't think we all ever get back to normality. I think to some extent we're still underestimating. Um, the time it is going to take from for the world to recover from COVID, uh, and you know I see that in the the sectors that I'm working in, and we'll probably there'll be a delayed probably demand response in in the raw material space, but uh, you know for I guess for our bulks at least, uh, China's continued to sort of storm ahead um, uh, pretty strongly, and we'll probably see it continuing to do so for the second half of this year. Sam, how do you deal with the uh, the analysts, the external stakeholders, the shareholders who are always wanting a, a shorter term uh, return on a, on, a, on a terrifically long term strategic play? Uh, yeah. I think you mentioned once EPS versus IQ in one of your one of your summaries. I thought it was quite telling. Maybe you want to sort of talk us through that. Yeah, it's it's really difficult. Um, you know, I, I wear out a lot of shoe leather knocking on doors and just speaking to fund managers, um, institutional investors, retail investors about clean tech. And I, I often try and impress on them that I can't afford to have a quarterly outlook on performance. It just doesn't work for a business like this. I have to think five, ten years ahead of how I position this company to make sure that uh, it, it's in a position to do something um, meaningful. Now, for many investors, that's just not a time frame that they can uh, they can accept. It's uh, it's been a, a very noticeable trend through my career, though, where I used to walk into these meetings with fund managers, and you would usually get a quite well-educated mining analyst, either a mining engineer or a geologist who understands our industry well. Nowadays, the industry is pretty much made up of with a few exceptions, generalists, where mining is a sideline. And to be frank, many of them see mining as a pretty unattractive source for investing capital because timeframes are long. Um, And why would you when you can invest in Facebook, Twitter, uh, Google, Apple, uh, and you have uh, all all those options nowadays? But I need your medals to make them work, don't I? Uh, Well, that's right. And that's the bit they all forget that, uh, unless you can either mine or farm effectively, we we all have nothing. So, and and look, I think the industry out at the mining industry has been very very successful in expanding supply to meet increasing demand. It always has. In fact, we've been our own worst enemy. We've often overexpanded capacity, yeah, right. which is just seen pr- prices plummet and uh, profitability fall. Um, there's been a lot more discipline. On the supply side in recent years, to your to your point about the EPS, I think the last five years there's been an enormous surplus of value created in Australia, mostly from bulk commodity exports, so iron ore and coal. And in previous generations, that would have all been invested back into new projects. Yeah, right. Okay. Supply that hasn't happened. Um, you know, call it wise or call it foolish. I guess time will tell. But the major mining houses have decided mostly to pay that that uh, surplus back to investors in the form of higher dividends, share buybacks. Uh, the question is, 
that surplus that was available to cope with you know, difficulties like COVID, unexpected difficulties, or to expand production to develop the new generation of mines in Australia and elsewhere, they're going to be the, the foundation of what we build for future generations. That just hasn't been happening. So particularly in the battery metals, none of the major mining houses want to be in this space. It's just too small. It doesn't move the needle for them. That, that may change over time, but for now they see what is a relatively small, unique market that doesn't really warrant the capital investment. Which just seems mind-blowing when you're saying in certain countries it's going to be mandated by 2025, yep. certain requirements. Yeah, it, there's... Um, Are you marketing well enough, Sam? That, that's you're starting, to make uh, me, starting to make me think a bit about this because it sounds like you're on a... You know, you're, on a, you're, on, you're sitting on a tremendous asset. It sounds like a bunch of great, outstanding people you've got in the team are thinking differently. Why, why hasn't it been picked up enough? I, I go to bed sometimes, Greg, thinking I must be the worst marketer in the world. <laughs> um, so, uh, but it, it's going to take time. Um, the, these projects are capital intensive. The ones, you know, Sunrise is going to be a very capital intensive project, a, a billion and a half US. Uh, to build it um, yeah. under our D- DFS. So this isn't small change. This isn't easy. You need to find large industrial partners either from the mining industry or from other actors in the supply chain, like like the car companies or battery makers. So it, it will take a bit of time. There's no, no one feels any pressure at the moment because there is enough raw material to supply everyone. Okay. But uh, in a few years, that could change very quickly. Talk me through the, um, the value of the share price to... Positioning of the company. Yeah, it's um, it's been a roller coaster for me since I arrived. I think when I arrived, we were a four cent stock. We we ran it up through the height of that interest in battery materials, probably two or three years ago. To we, I think we hit a billion dollars in market cap at that point. We were about a dollar seventy five. Okay. Now we've come all the way back to about fifteen cents, as the market has I think lost interest in. This battery story. Uh, we're not the only one by any means. So we're a modestly capitalised company now, a bit over $100 million. We need to fund what is a very expensive project. And we can't do it given where our share price is today through uh, issuing equity. So we're looking for partners who will partner in us, with us directly in the project. And I guess the other great fear behind all that, Sam, is that someone might say, you're a terrific buy. I might come and pick you, I might come and pick you all up. Yeah, it is. We have a very tight register, about almost 50% of our register is held between our four major shareholders and and the management team. So, um, you know, any any acquirer would need to navigate that if they wish to. Um, But look, if if the market, and this comes back to your point about um, how far ahead are investors prepared to look, at the moment, not very far at all. Um, They want to see investment in businesses that start generating cash flow in the near term. Um, this is, for us, it'll, it'll take us three years to build this um, and then probably another two years to ramp it up. So you're talking about long, patient capital that is needed to build something like this. But once you've built it, it's 40 years of critical material supply uh, in the first quartile of the cost curve, all coming from a very safe jurisdiction. As an investor, Sam, do I really understand your message? And let me ask you this, because you've got two products, haven't you? You've got water and you've got batteries. Mm. Is it confusing me at all? Yeah, it confuses a lot of people. And we'll have to look at some point in thinking about how we 
um, if not simplify, make clearer the value offering in this business. Um, the challenge has been that because we we are a technology company, we've been an incubator. You know, we've we've created technologies, we've gone out to commercialise, we've created these individual companies, one in metals, one in water. Uh, we're developing one now in uh, graphene oxide membranes. So, and that's very much clean tech's DNA. We we create the technology, we create the company, and then we look to try and give it an independent existence. I would have loved to have been able to say the water business is at a scale where it's ready to stand on its own two feet, and I think it's getting close to that point. Okay. But you know, at, at this stage, uh, there's a lot of synergy between what we do. The, the same technology we've developed for water treatment is the same technology we use in metal extraction, wow, which, right. again, is also used in graphene production. So to the layman investor out there, you just talked about two technology companies a few minutes ago whose share price rocketed. Yep. Do I see you guys as a technology company? Or am I getting confused thinking you're a mining company or a metals company or a, or a water filter company or something like that? I'm sort of wondering because, what you know, if I, you say the word technology in three quarters of the – and any stock exchange around the world, boom, up, up, up the share prices go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, I, um, y- your point's a fair one. And how do you market a company like this to investors who want clarity around your objective? For us, it's uh, all of the, almost all of the value that will be derived in clean tech will come from Sunrise. I mean, it's a, okay. it's a business that will throw off $400 million of free cash flow a year once it's up and running. Right. Uh, and it will run for 40 years. So it will be an enormously valuable project. We have just have to execute well on that project. Uh, water and servicing water treatment markets um, does not provide you with that scale of opportunity, but it can be a very good business. It's just a different business model, particularly if you supply to municipalities or industrial customers. So for us, we are... Um, uh, we'll need to think longer term about how all these businesses work together or whether we separate them out or how we manage that. Sam, can you sort of paint some pictures in my mind here? I'm thinking of technology companies and you've got the mad, I guess, the mad scientists in the back room developing all the, the new ideas, the thing, you know, for all of us for the next five, 10 years. You're doing exactly the same. You said the word incubators, which means in my mind, incubators slash labs. What is clean tech? Do you, do you have these type of people Sitting there, the professors, the the sharpest people in the world. Can you maybe sort of give us a bit of a feel on that? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, we see our skill set in uh, extraction and separation technologies, and we've 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 developed a particular um, uh, proficiency in ion exchange systems. So we use to, to explain that we use resins, or they're like little um, beads you find in bean bags. Oh, yeah. Uh, but they are engineered to have a, a particular electrical charge attached to them, ionic charge, which if you mix it with uh, water that contains pollution or a slurry that contains metal, these resins can pull those metals or, or pollutants effectively. So we um, uh, that, that's the, the foundational technology. We, we do have a lot of very smart people thinking about the chemistry and a lot of experienced people who've worked in industries that have applied these technologies in the past. Ion exchange is not unique. We haven't developed that ourselves. That's been operating in um, uh, mostly the former Soviet Union for 50 or 60 years very effectively. What we have developed, though, are systems for how you take those resins and be able to apply them at very large scale to either 
mining applications or water applications and get the highest possible recoveries you can from them. And, and that just requires continual and constant investment. Uh, you need to be always thinking about what, what are the other technologies coming behind you? How are people improving on those? Where do you need to be uh, to deliver the lowest cost, most effective solution in the industry? So it's just constant product improvement. And, um, we, we, yeah, we, we have laboratories, uh, we have people doing, and our aim is not to throw lots of money at this. This is something I learned in Rio's exploration division. Right. Um, you know, it seemed to be that the more money you threw at a high risk activity, uh, the less success you had. We found that it's generally better to keep people focused with modest budgets, okay. but with very clear targets on what have to be what has to be delivered. Now, in many cases, you're not going to be able to hit your targets, but you generally find that in that environment, people think very creatively about how they have to come up with a solution if the dollars are, are, are quite constrained. So. It's certainly our DNA, and it seems to have worked for us and, and Peter Voigt, our CTO and his team. And is the technology fairly high-risk technology? No, as I say, the, the ion exchange systems have been used for years. Okay. Um, we, we, we looked to push the envelope of where, where it can be used. So a good example are these uh, graphene oxide membranes. We convert graphite into a graphene oxide. Graphene is this amazing wonder material that's incredibly strong, uh, only uh, a few atoms thick. But what we've done is use ion exchange to, pr to produce a graphene oxide ink. So we convert an ink and then we use it in a conventional printer to laminate a, a polymer membrane with this very thin layer, extremely thin layer of graphene oxide. Uh, and then we roll that up and put it into a water cartridge, so a reverse osmosis cartridge. Mm -hmm. And um, it has orders of magnitude more efficiency than a conventional polymer membrane. You can get more water through it. Uh, you can um, pull out significantly more of the pollutants. Uh, so, you know, that that's, in our view, a logical extension of how you would apply our core technology to uh, a problem uh, in today's water market. Do you partner with universities? Yeah, a, a lot of them. Um, we have development programs with Monash, uh, with Deakin in Australia, uh, with Michigan Tech in the States, uh, with Chongqing University in China. Yeah, we, we do a lot with universities. And where do you see Australia sitting in amongst all those, the Australian universities? Uh, very good. Capability is high and generally uh, quite business focused. So uh, I think there's there's a generation of uh, researchers that have come through uh, Australian universities who've had to deal with quite demanding clients and, and understanding that research is not for researchers' sake, where they, they work quite well in terms of defining uh, our business targets. But, you know, we, we find that the best results generally come from working with multiple uni universities across different fields. So it's that collaboration between our, our partners that, that generates a lot of value as well. And if I'm a, uh, a, a graduate, coming out in the next, I don't know, next year or so, and I've got aspirations to build a career in technology. And someone says, have you heard of clean tech? And I said, no, I haven't, but I'm more than happy to go investigate it. And I go and meet with the chief exec. What's the chief exec looking for in terms of fit, character, I guess, values? What's How do you pick people, Sam? 
Yeah, this is if if you're talking about building an innovative company, yes, that is very different to building a mining company. So to your point about having to potentially separate out businesses to have a clear objective for what you're trying to achieve, that that has to happen eventually. You incubate and then you you let it stand on its own two feet. But if it's if your interest is in innovation and technology, uh, I look for a few things. I think people have to be extremely curious. Curiosity is something that isn't easily visible in people, but you when when you see people who are prepared to experiment and try things and always keep asking why, that that to me is um, that to me is absolutely fundamental in, in an innovative company. People are prepared to keep asking why and why not. So uh, I'd also I think in, in looking at people who want to make technology part of their uh, of their career, think about I guess what are the, the really important trends that are happening. You know, I've got a son who's my eldest is 19 now, um, and uh, I'm very interested to think about and see how he views the world. He views it very differently to the way I did when I was 19. Um, you know, having grown up in Australia, when when you want to work in technology, in my generation, there are only a few companies or industries you could really look at, and we were so strong in mining, and that was that was you know, quite interesting to me. I could see the technological applications happening in mining. But if you think about the world in the next 50 years, it's the things like biotechnology, artificial intelligence um, that, to me, probably present the most, uh, the largest opportunities, but also the most profound dilemmas we're going to have as well. So, uh, yes, uh, we are doing interesting things because and I'm passionate about materials and material science. I think we need uh, to be able to find far better solutions to some of the problems we have in things like recycling and uh, the uh, wastage that we have today in current industrial processes. But there are lots of areas in technology that the next generation need to think about where they can make a real impact. And the ones I've mentioned are probably to me, if I had my choice again, I'd probably look at thinking about uh, trying to find ways to work in those areas. What about the uh, the other part of it, uh, instant gratification? If I'm a young person, I want to see things done. I'm going to go and report to Sam. And he's going to keep telling me about this this deal five years down the road. How do you, how do you inspire people to keep keep sticking with you? Yeah, it's hard, and but but not not in a way. I mean, clean tech. When if you look at our internal structure, is really three businesses under one umbrella, and you know they, they each have their own to me unique cultures and approaches to how they they get on the business. If if you leave if you leave the Sunrise Metals team, who, who are very engineering focused, very linear in their thinking. Uh, not a lot of flexibility and adaptability uh, to run our R&D division. It would be a disaster. So my my chief job as CEO um, is to make sure we get the balance right and that people feel as though the domains they work in uh, uh, are appreciated, valued and respected and that they have enough space within those domains to be able to execute on what they need to do. What it means is that we often have a lot of very hard debates about where our priorities have to lie, and particularly when capital is constrained, you have to think quite hard. Yep. But as I say, I wake up every morning and go to work feeling very uncomfortable having to go through this balancing exercise every day about how you make sure that people uh, can deliver in the right environment. Why did Why do you still go to work? Because I love the challenge. Being uncomfortable is not not a problem. In fact, you know, difficulty and problems are really what makes 
uh, us deliver good outcomes. And I, I, I've always felt that if you're in a company where things are going really well and you're cruising along and there's probably a problem somewhere that you're not seeing and it'll eventually come and bite you. So um, and maybe uh, as I've got older, I've tried to relax a bit more and not worry so much about stuff. Uh, and it, the only way you can do that is to put really good people around you, the way you build your teams. But, you know, I love the challenge because the work we, we are doing is important. It is really important. Every incremental improvement just builds on the other. And eventually you get to a point where you build enough improvements into something the way you have now, something that is a completely different platform on which to build off. That, that's a true technological advance. You know, I think we've had this discussion before in the past that the last 150 years of human development, to me, has been the exception rather than the rule. We've spent thousands of years in the dark ages uh, with very little development. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, the the thing that interests me is, are we going to continue to see the same rates of progress? Because the the rates of progress in lifting people out of poverty, I know we have environmental problems, but um, we've vastly solved an enormous number of them along the way as well. We shouldn't forget that. Mm. Um, the ability to feed this massive population that's expanding on Earth. Um, we, we've done some amazing things with technology, but um, there is there has to be eventually a cap to everything. Um, uh, exponential growth does not find equilibria anywhere, and at some point... Um, something has to give, and whether it's the environment, which we're starting to see sort of pretty obvious signs that the, our, our environment that we live in is struggling to cope with our growth, or uh, it might be the way technology uh, impacts the way we live, how we see ourselves as a species, and that's you know, very much artificial intelligence and bioengineering are two of the things that could impact upon that. It can't last forever, and, and we have to now be recognizing what the challenges and the, and, the, and the dangers are in some of these things that we're, we're pursuing uh, and, and how we manage them going forward. We're going to need some very wise judgments uh, in the next century to, to get us through. Sam, as a former miner, are the mining companies doing the right thing in regards to sustainability? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually very proud of what the mining industry has done since I've started in this industry. The ICMM was established when I first started out, which was a, an effort to centralise uh, within the industry an approach to how we manage environmental issues, community issues. If there's an industry that has spent more time than any on this concept of licence to operate, it is mining. Okay. And the reason for that is simple. It's unlike most industries. When things go wrong, we can't pick up our business and move elsewhere. Mm. We are stuck where the mine is. So... You either have to make it work or you pack your bags and go home very early. So we, we discovered very early in our industry that the license to operate is core to one of the competencies for actually building a very good mining business. Uh, and if you look at the way the mining industry in general, for, for the most part, has worked with communities, uh, the way that's invested in education and healthcare local to the, the areas in which it operates, uh, the way it communicates and manages environmental issues. We're one of the most highly regulated industries in the world when it comes to actually having to, to dig a piece of dirt out of the ground. So, no, I'm, I'm proud of what the industry has managed to achieve. Could we have done things better? Absolutely. I think um, if you go back and look at history, uh, Agricola um, wrote an amazing book in the Middle Ages 
called Deray Metallica. He, he, he travelled around Europe and he wrote a story about how mines operated and he drew beautiful pictures. If you go back to that Middle Ages document, mm-hmm. a lot of the processes he documented in that book look very similar to what we're doing today. So you could argue that we haven't actually moved in technology and processing capability a lot. But I would also say we have got better at a lot of things. And yeah, but we can always improve. Let's go from ancient history to new opportunity. Mm. Australia, the, the country is talking about investing very heavily into the world of space. Yeah. Does clean tech have a big role to play in that in that next sphere of business generation and new markets for Australia? Yeah, so um, we, we have looked um, at a couple of applications in space, and this is in the area of scandium, one of these metals we produce uh, from our mine. So we, we look at um, you know, the, what is absolute gold to aerospace and, and uh, to space applications is weight. If you can pull weight out of uh, a rocket or you can pull weight out of an aircraft, it's a huge business. So, um, yes, we are looking at various applications and, and working with the space uh, and rocket launch industry around how we can put our metals into those applications. And are we sitting on a lot of that metal? Yeah, scandium, it's the, the biggest resources in the world we know are located here in New South Wales. Shall I go put a stake next to that Parks pub or what shall I be doing? That sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the beauty of our project. You know, we're mining it for the nickel and cobalt to make car batteries, yeah. but the scandium comes out almost free with it. It it's, it's comes out as, as a byproduct of nickel and cobalt mining. So it'll be the first time in Earth's history that we'll be producing this extremely rare product in very large quantities which then gives industrial users the confidence to use it in their aeroplanes, their cars, their rockets, uh, their bicycles, their motorbikes, their scooters, anything that you need to make with the strength of steel but with the weight of aluminium, you get using scanning. Sam, you've got a lot on your mind as a CEO and you're thinking you know, a long way ahead just in the whole play that you talked about today. Where do you take the time? How do you think? How do you plan? You know, how, you know there's some big bets you're, you're placing in the next few years. I'm the first to admit I'm not a very good planner. Oh, okay. Um, but, but business has taught me that I need some minimum level of planning capability to actually do my job. But <laughs> I've never been a very good planner because in my experience, things change too much. And people would say that's why you need a plan and, and fair enough. But I've found that working and surrounding yourself with people who are really good at what they do, far better than the job you could ever do, and making sure that that environment where they can work effectively together tends to bring the cohesion and the planning and the direction together. But uh, there's no doubt that, uh, you know, when you get into businesses where execution becomes important, planning then is absolutely critical and we do plan. But with innovation, too much planning can be very stifling. Um, I, I can't I can't count the number of times our development programs have changed almost 180 degrees because of things that have been discovered or problems that have been encountered. So, you know, I, I have a mindset of quite uh, high tolerance for flexibility and change. Yeah. Um, where where do I, you know, get uh, my thoughts and ideas and things from? A lot of it comes from reading. I, I read a lot, mm-hmm. and um, I read a lot of everything. I, I try not to be focused on particular topics or genres, you need to read widely. 
and uh, I get a lot of thoughts there. For entertainment, I like podcasts. Uh, they're quick, easy ways to often get some insight into areas that you're not familiar with. But, uh, yeah, look, I, I think uh, there's, there's, no, there's nothing particularly difficult about seeing what are going to be the major shifts in society that are driven by technology over the next 50 years. They're, they're already clearly on the chessboard. You can see them. It's just how, where the pieces end up and how they play out. Um, and you know, bioengineering provides huge opportunities, but also enormous threats to what might uh, happen longer term. Yeah. Artificial intelligence is the same. Uh, you're seeing at the moment the way that um, uh, facial recognition software and how it cuts across across privacy yeah. is, is a big issue. So um, how as societies and communities we manage this is, is going to be, to me, the defining feature of probably the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, are we going to be a community that um, constrains the rate of technological development for, for fear of these things? Yeah. Uh, or are we going to be one who says, let's let the technology um, sort of uh, lie where it falls and deal with the problems after they emerge and see what happens? Yeah, it's, it's a very exciting time to be alive. I can't think of a more interesting period in society with the digital revolution um, to, to have been alive. We're very fortunate. It's just a question of what the future looks like for the next generations. So we're relying on people like you, Sam, to deliver on what you said you're going to do. Can I ask you from a point of view, you mentioned technology, technology, technology there. Here we are moving product out of Australia to get processed to China and to come back in. That margin, maybe we, the argument could be we should be doing ourselves. Is there enough discussion about the land of opportunity we're sitting on here in the world of technology? No, I don't think there is. Um, and uh, look, technology generally, it's, it's hard to lump it as one concept. You need to separate it out by industry and, and understand where Australia actually has an advantage. In many areas, it won't have an advantage. And sometimes it will make sense for China to be the processor of materials because it will be lower cost. Uh, but you then also have to weigh up what are the trade-offs in, in doing that in terms of supply security, how are those materials produced and so on. So in this country, I'd, I'd like the debate to be uh, a bit more inclusive. I think, you know, there, uh, there are certain areas in, in the industry I work in, in mining, um, where we could do a lot better at, at, at what we do. You know, if you think about the biggest gains to be made in mining, it's probably in energy consumption. You know, we we absor absorb an enormous amount of energy just in crushing rocks. Uh, if someone could come up with a great way of separating um, uh, rock from ore, that would be uh, a lower energy option. That would be uh, a game changer for our industry. But, um, yeah, we, we, we need as a nation to start thinking more carefully about what is in our national interests for the long term? When, when I was at Rio, I liked telling the story that um, uh, Maury Morby, who ran the old CRA in those days, was having to make the business case to invest in the Pilbara. This was going to be the, Australia's first iron ore mine. Yeah. And he went off to London to RTZ, which was the majority shareholder at that time looking for capital. Yeah. Um, he went with a two-page investment proposal that didn't have one financial metric in it. It was all argued on the national interest. So I, 
I, I couldn't see any major mining company ever investing a dollar on the basis of that sort of investment proposition today. You have to you have to justify a long term net present value and internal rate of return and a payback. We 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 don't think about the national interest and that decision by Maury Morby in those days. If you think about what that iron ore industry has done for Australia, uh, you know, it's our largest export earner today. Uh, it's given us a strategic foothold in the region, yeah. um, and uh, you know it's it, it took a leap of faith um, 50 years ago to, to to get that investment, but it was um, it was done with a view to the national interest, and that's the debate we need to get going again. Is there a, an equivalent of a Henry Ford floating around out there today that you admire? Uh, look, you'd have to give Elon Musk credit for sort of pushing the automotive industry into a different area. I heard someone say the other day that, um, you know, Elon's probably accelerated uh, the adoption of electric vehicles by about a decade. Okay. I, I don't I don't think that's right. I actually think it would have taken a lot longer because there is nothing encouraging the current automakers to change anything in their production processes. So... Um, I, and you know he's brought a very strong communication message, which governments are responding to through regulation, subsidies, uh, and all those things. So, you know, if you're looking at someone who's making a very large impact, like a Henry Ford, you'd have to say he is. Um, uh, you know, in the history of science, there are, there are so many people who are recognised and unrecognised for the contributions they make, um, and most of them build on on the, the generation that came before. Uh, I think this, the thing with Tesla, you've got a combination of a vision for technology, but also sort of marketing and, and business aptitude put together very quickly as Henry Ford had. What we're doing you know, at CSL in Australia, I think is also amazing. They've built a, a tremendous business uh, in plasma products there and how they've managed to protect and grow that, that sector for themselves. Uh, it's been terrific. Well, Sam, we've got to ask the obvious question. What car do you drive? I, I, I uh, ride an electric scooter. Oh, do uh, you? you know, one, <laughs> one of those little things that kids ride. It's quite yeah. good, a Segway. Okay. If we called the PM on our hotline sitting here today, hey, what, what, what are you going to ask? What would you ask for to take this company to the next level, help the country? Is it tax breaks? Is it more investment? What, what What's going to be the game changer? What could help? I, the first point I would make is that we are not here for subsidies or handouts, our businesses, once in once we invest in them, have to stand on their own two feet. We need to build profitable businesses. Um, the, the challenge at the moment, though, is that we face very significant barriers to entry, whether they're technology in processing capability yep. or capital. Uh, you know, there just isn't the depth of capital available in this country like there might be in other countries like China. So uh, we may we have valuable resources but there is an enormous challenge in actually getting them um, financed and built today. We have to make a decision as a country in the national interest whether we want to be part of the renewables industry. This isn't a question about morality and whether it's the right thing to do. You know, if, as soon as you start dabbling in morality and the ethics of what you should and shouldn't be doing in business, it becomes a much more slippery slope because you can justify business investment decisions on anything then. Um, the question becomes is, do we believe that this renewables market and the sectors that are going to be critical to supplying it are going to have a lot of value? Are they going to have a lot of value in terms of um, the returns to investors they generate? Are they going to have a lot of value 
in the skilling of the workforce that are needed to run them. They're going to have a lot of value in the communities that they're going to service and the value they put back into the communities, uh, which are going to be the major suppliers to them. Are they going to have a lot of value in the way uh, the rest of the world perceives us and the value we bring through the uh, way we've leveraged our natural resources? And to me, you can tick all those boxes very easily. There's enormous opportunity if we can develop our resource as well. So we are not looking for handouts from government. And uh, I, I'd be very strongly suggesting that others wouldn't either because we're confident our project will stand on its own two feet. But sometimes when you look at the barriers to entry, there needs to be some facilitation to, to recognise that the playing field isn't always even, uh, that incumbents and vested interests will try and prevent change. And, you know, we are you know, sometimes looking for government support in the form of what they do today in terms of R&D, tax rate, uh, rebates and incentives. It's a very valuable uh, uh, mechanism for a company like Cleantech. But also bringing industry together and thinking about what a clear strategy is for how we build this sector. Uh, we'll be part of that, I hope, and, and as others will be. But unless there is a clear plan for how we take it forward and get these projects built, um, you know, we, we will be left behind very, very quickly. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is, because I see it as one of the largest opportunities globally that Australia can bring real value to. And, and unless, uh, unless there's good interaction um, between business and government and community, we're just not going to get there. The, the barriers are extremely high. Sam? If you were to look back at that young that young person starting his career in mining, what advice all these years later would you give him? Uh, first, get, get a haircut. I had quite long hair back then. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, relax but work hard would be what I would say. So don't don't be so invested. It's stressful, but make sure that you you take pride in what you do and 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 work diligently and. Um, if you're going to balance relaxation with hard work, though, you have to enjoy what you do. Find the things that you're passionate about and you love. Read more and be curious, I, I tell myself. Uh, and uh, be kind. I think be kind to people, even in business settings. Sometimes we forget that. It's really important to be kind and, and, and think about others. Um, and follow innovation and technology because, in my experience, if you look at the way society develops, it is technology and innovation that leads it always. You have the great social revolutions in time, but most of those are responses to the way that society develops again, which is driven by uh, whether it's industrialization in the, in the 18th century, whether it's by you know, the splitting of the atom. You know, it's, it's technology that drives or the, you know, the reading of DNA. It's technology that drives everything we do and the way we move forward as a society. So, yeah, I, I, I just say just work hard, you know, put your head down and work, mate. Sam, can't ask for any more than that today. Look, firstly, um, we're going to be watching closely that share price going up after the, we get this podcast out and people knock on your door to buy some more shares. Good luck with Cleantech. And from all of us, thanks very much for making the time today. It's been a, a very, very insightful discussion. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Good luck. You've been listening to No Limitations. No Limitations.